Dylan Weinberger, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ezra. From behind the producer glass to to in front of the mic. (laughs) It's very exciting, yes. Tell me about Impact Season 3. What are we doing here? Yeah, so in the third season of the show, we are looking at many of the proposals from the candidates running for president in 2020. A lot of the proposals they have have been tried before in other places or at other times. So we are looking at how all those big ideas went previously, and we're going all over the world and uh, some right here in the U.S. too. So give me a couple examples. What are some episodes we're going to hear this season? Yes. Yeah, so we're going to hear about Germany had a Green New Deal style law um, since about the year 2000. Wait, you're going to do the German Green New Deal? Yes. Oh, I'm excited about this because this has come up in a bunch of the climate episodes we've done here. And then people on Twitter will be like, well, you know, it's complicated. So I, I've i really needed the Vox Explainer. What is it called, the German project? So it is called Energiewinde. Energiewinde, they... yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, they uh, they did a very German thing and created a whole new word for it. Um, we also have an episode about a clemency proposal, um, so criminal justice reform. We have one about a free college plan, which was tried um, in a small town called Kalamazoo in Michigan. And then we have a couple of um, healthcare episodes, one based in Taiwan and one in Australia. So what you're doing here is you're taking these policy proposals that are on the table here in 2020 and finding their roots in other places, looking at sort of how they passed um, or, you know, what what led them to pass and then what difficulties or successes we found in implementation. Exactly. Exactly. And so which episode are we going to hear today? So the episode today is about Elizabeth Warren's plan to fight the opioid crisis. It's based on what we did in the early 90s to fight the AIDS epidemic. Um, That's called the Ryan White Care Act. And Elizabeth Warren's plan is called the Care Act. Um, She actually co-wrote it with the late Congressman Elijah Cummings, and um, she wants to dedicate billions of dollars to fighting the opioid crisis. But as you'll hear in the episode, that is a really hard thing to do to convince people that this is the kind of money we should be spending on a population that traditionally doesn't have a lot of sympathetic folks in in Washington. So there, there are a couple of things that struck me listening to the episode. So one, which I don't know that um, you know, or even that most people listening to the show know, my great uncle died of AIDS in 1994. Oh, wow. And was, we were very close with him. He was in, you know, uh, some, someone I, I knew well. Um, and it was only much later in my life that I understood what had happened to him, happened as part of an epidemic, happened as part of a policy failure, and that the particular year he died was the peak of the AIDS epidemic, that, that yeah. he was not just, I mean, to me, he was a, a person, right? He was my, my, he was a member of my family, somebody I loved. And that, but then when I began reading about the AIDS epidemic, watching documentaries on it, like I understood him to be part of this much larger story. And the the reason I bring this up is only that something you talk about in this episode, which was hard for me to hear, but I think important to remember, is the kind of not just discrimination, but in many cases, loathing and demonization that greeted the gay community when this epidemic was ripping through them. And now, you know, Pete Buttigieg is running for president and like nobody, I don't want to say nobody cares if he's LGBT because people do, but it's almost been taken for granted. But but this is not long ago that we're talking about when a huge theme of this episode, which was honestly a little bit hard for me to listen to, was the search among members of the gay community who are seeing their friends die for somebody who wasn't gay, who could be the poster child for AIDS, because that was what would unlock federal funding. That was that was a hard thing to to hear. 
Yeah, it's surprising for me to hear too. I mean, I I was born in 1985, and so I remember taunts and teasing about LGBTQ folks when I was growing up in the Midwest. But it is hard to remember now living in DC or and and you know going to college on the East Coast. It's it's not something you encounter and you kind of take it for granted. And the idea that AIDS activists would need a boy who contracted AIDS through his hemophilia medication to be the face of the epidemic, that's really surprising to hear today. But a lot of the people I talked to in the LGBTQ community who were on the front lines of fighting the epidemic were like, of course, this is what we needed. The Reagan administration wasn't paying attention otherwise. So yeah, it it is really surprising. And that's one of the reasons I really wanted to investigate this issue for this episode. The the other question I had for you was about how you thought about the both explicit, but more often I think implicit analogy you're drawing in this episode between the ways in which opioid users are stigmatized and the ways in which um, gay men who had AIDS in the the 80s and, and, and 90s were stigmatized because something that's been, I think, a theme of the opioid crisis has been compared to a lot of other public health crises. Uh, I think people most often compare it to the crack epidemic, which is much more centered among African-American communities. But, but here we're talking about the AIDS epidemic. Because the opioid crisis has hit rural white communities so hard, it is somehow, it seems to me, bypassed a lot of that stigmatization that greeted other crises, um, which has both, I think, been uh, something that we need to reflect on as a country, how much more intuitively sympathetic our political system has been when it's happening in rural Ohio and not inner city Detroit um, or uh, or San Francisco. But on the other hand, it makes me wonder if some of the tactics that are being talked about in this episode are going to be as necessary in the opioid crisis where there's a lot less um, demonization of the people who uh, the political system needs to do something to help. Yeah, I, I that's something I thought a lot about when I was working on this episode. And these folks tend to be more sympathetic because of who they are and what they look like and where they come from. But on the other hand, we have not mustered the political will to pass the kind of legislation that is required to fight the epidemic. So they may be less stigmatized, but I think addiction is still really stigmatized. And it's it's I think it's a hard thing for people to grapple with and and talk about openly. And I think you're starting to see people do that more and more now. But when I was working on this episode, I was thinking about the obituaries that were written in the early days of the AIDS epidemic. And a lot of the times people would not say that, you know, this person died of AIDS. They would say, oh, he died suddenly after a short illness. And I think there's a lot of analogies to be drawn to addiction where it's starting to change, but I think people are still have difficulty talking about the fact that someone died of an overdose or of addiction and might use a euphemism or or just dance around the issue because it's still hard to think of as a disease and and not as the the person who's addicted as their fault. I think it's a good thing for people to keep in mind as they hear this episode. So I want to note as we go into this, um, there are parts of us that are hard to listen to um, because we're we're exploring a different time. And there's also, and I really appreciate that about this episode, but it is a, you're seeing here real politic applied in desperation to something that should have been treated as a moral issue and a values issue. And there's a discordance in that. Hearing what people had to do to get their own suffering taken seriously, it almost, it, it seems it is deeply unfair, but I also think that there's an important lesson in that, too. So here is um, the first episode of season three of The Impact, which, of course, you can subscribe to and should subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. And Jillian Weinberger, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Ezra. A quick word of warning before we begin. 
This episode contains some offensive language. This is a story told by survivors. There was a lot of rumors about previously healthy young men getting sick. Cleve Jones is one of those survivors. Our story begins in his adopted hometown of San Francisco on an autumn day in 1981. I was just walking down Market Street to Castro and went past the Twin Peaks Tavern, which is a very famous bar here in San Francisco. It was actually believed to be the first gay bar that had plate glass windows so that one could see in from the outside and see who the patrons were. And Bobby was there. Bobby Campbell, a registered nurse who lived in the neighborhood. I'd known Bobby just peripherally, but I certainly knew who he was. And he took off his shoes and socks and right there in the bar showed me the bottom of his feet. And I saw these small, slightly raised purple spots. Those spots were Kaposi's sarcoma, once a rare skin cancer mostly affecting older men. It would soon become well-known as a condition associated with AIDS, but no one really knew that at the time. They just knew that a bunch of gay men in the Castro had these purple bumps. And Bobby decided to do something about it. He got a Polaroid camera, and he took pictures of his spots. And he made a poster, which he then got placed in the window of the Star Pharmacy that was at 18th and Castro. And that, I believe, was the very first attempt at public education about the disease we now call HIV-AIDS in the entire world. And within minutes of it being taped up there in the window, a small crowd of very anxious men had assembled on the sidewalk to look at these pictures. And with that, Bobby became his community's representative for this new disease. Quite literally, their poster boy. By 1990, nearly a decade after Bobby put up his poster, hundreds of thousands of people had HIV-AIDS. Tens of thousands had died. And that year... Congress finally passed the first nationwide coordinated response to the AIDS crisis. It was called the Ryan White Care Act. In the years since, it's dedicated billions of dollars to the fight against AIDS. And it revolutionized care for patients with this once deadly disease. When the government takes bold action, we can tackle big problems like the AIDS epidemic. Recently, Senator Elizabeth Warren has been revisiting the Ryan White Care Act. She's using it as a blueprint to fight a new public health crisis. The opioid epidemic doesn't discriminate. It goes after every single community, urban, suburban, rural, poor, middle class. Warren's big idea to fight the opioid crisis is called the CARE Act, a deliberate echo of the Ryan White legislation. It's become a major part of her presidential campaign, and it would cost $100 billion over 10 years. Addiction experts agree this is the kind of money we need to fight the opioid crisis. But it's a really expensive idea to help a deeply stigmatized population. How would a President Warren get it through Congress? From the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is The Impact. I'm your host, Jillian Weinberger. The Impact is a podcast about the consequences. When people in power act, or fail to act, what happens to the rest of us? It's 2020. You may have heard that there are a lot of people running for president in November. But we're staying away from their personal bios, their campaign gaffes, and their debate prep. 
we're going to talk about what they actually want to do if they're elected. A hundred billion dollars. Move away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency. Obamacare. Hit this opioid crisis head on. And we add a public option. And it's going to be a great wall and it's going to work. These are all big ideas, but they're not new. A lot of them have been tried before, here in this country and around the world. Germany. Taiwan. 1968. Nogales, Arizona. The fall of 1981. This season, we have the stories of how these big ideas worked or didn't work. How they changed people's lives. We have stories of hard-fought success and epic failure. Stories about the problems we're facing and the candidates' big ideas that could solve them. Stories of what might happen in the next four years if these big ideas get rolled out or if people in power fail to take action. Today on the show, how an epidemic begins and ends, what it took to get the federal government to finally act on AIDS, and what that means for Senator Warren's plan to fight the opioid epidemic today. So let's go back now to the Castro in the early 1980s. After Bobby Campbell taped up that poster, he started writing a column about his illness in a local newspaper. And across the country in Washington, D.C., Tim Westmoreland read that column. I was counsel to the Subcommittee on Health and the Environment. Tim was one of the few openly gay people working in Congress at that time. And in 1982, he asked Bobby to testify at a congressional hearing a hearing about the illness that caused those purple spots on Bobby's feet. Researchers had started calling it GRID, Gay-Related Immune Deficiency. As I was setting up the tables and the chairs the day before, Bobby came in and I'd never met him in person. And we sat and talked a little bit. And he said to me, I don't know anything about congressional hearings. What should I wear as a witness? And I said, well, you know, what would you ordinarily wear? And he said, well, I can wear a jacket and a tie or I can wear my nurse's uniform, if you think that would be helpful, or I'm a member of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, I can come in a nun's habit. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. It's a drag troupe with a whole lot of glitter and fake eyelashes. They do community service work. It's customary to take a name when you join, and Bobby, a nurse, became Sister Florence Nightmare RN. I saw my whole career pass before my eyes at this point. Oh my God, I've invited this witness and I have no idea what he's going to do. The hearing wasn't recorded, but in the end, Bobby wore a suit and tie. And he was a very good witness. Bobby's testimony didn't get much attention, but he continued to speak out about what it was like to live with this disease. It was devastating. Bobby talked to CBS News not too long after Tim's hearing. He was skinny with a thin blonde mustache. He wore a button that said, I will survive. When I came down with this disease, I found this button and it, it absolutely reflected my position. You know, I, I may be down, but I'm not out. This was just over a year into President Reagan's first term. Reagan ran on budget cuts. Only an all-encompassing program combining restraint in government spending with economic growth in the private sector will work. And he made good on that promise when he took office. Tim was worried. We had the idea that there was going to be consequences from this, that there would be public health problems, perhaps a public health disaster. Tim's boss in Congress was afraid that the federal government didn't have what it needed to fight this disease. By that point, it was known as AIDS. He started holding more hearings with witnesses from the Centers for Disease Control, the National Institutes of Health, and others. At these hearings, they'd ask, 
do you have enough support given the budget stresses that the public health service has been under? And the witnesses were saying, as they must, because they're testifying on behalf of the administration, we've got what we need. It's not a problem. We're transferring some money around. In private, though, some of those same witnesses would tell Tim the opposite. They didn't have what they needed to fight the AIDS epidemic. And Tim saw evidence of that in his own life. So did Cleve Jones, the activist we met at the start. In their own community, the situation was grim. I knew people who were getting sick. I knew people who died. You have to understand that people were dying every day. We were in funerals every day. Tim asked if we knew what a Rolodex was, the old school kind with address cards that flip around. I did. I still have a Rolodex, probably someplace over there, of people who were in my Rolodex who died and that I couldn't bring myself to throw away their Rolodex card, so I moved it over into a second Rolodex just so I wouldn't have to throw them away. In our address books, we had entire pages where every name had been crossed out. And then, in the spring of 1984, Tim got a hold of some information, evidence that the Reagan administration wasn't being entirely forthcoming about its commitment to fight AIDS. It all started with these anonymous envelopes slipped under Tim's office door. Plain brown envelopes with Xerox budgets in it. They were copies of budget requests, requests from the health agencies for federal dollars, including... An entire AIDS budget that had been for the Public Health Service. Probably 100 pages, but of what we would now call spreadsheets. And Tim realized that the public health people, the scientists, are actually requesting a dramatic increase in funding that never makes its way into an official budget. In other words, public health officials, the scientists, the experts, they said they needed millions more to effectively fight the AIDS epidemic. The Reagan administration ignored them. Tim leaked that budget to the press, and it landed in the San Francisco Chronicle just before the Democratic National Convention arrived that summer. Bobby Campbell read the report. Secretary of Health and Human Services Margaret Heckler called AIDS the number one priority of Reagan's health administration. But many of us feel that in Washington it's still business as usual while we are dying. Bobby spoke in a march in San Francisco just before the convention began, in July 1984. We who have AIDS have a disease that is poorly understood, often fatal, expensive, inadequately testable, and so far incurable. On that stage, in front of a huge crowd, Bobby looked even thinner than he had on the news two years earlier. Beside him stood his boyfriend. Gay love in 84. People today don't appreciate how much people disliked gay men and drug users at that time. Wait a minute, are you going to tell me you're a fag? I mean, if you're going to tell me you're a fag... I don't think I can handle it. Yes, you're a total fag. Doesn't this cafeteria have a no fags allowed rule? I'm not a fag. I mean, if the AIDS epidemic had first appeared among members of the American Legion, the way Legionnaires did, or people of Norwegian descent, I think the Reagan administration would have done something out of the ordinary. What might have been an extraordinary response if it had appeared in another group was just not coming because we don't care. We don't care about the people who are getting sick. In the lead-up to the 1984 election, the Republican Party remained silent on AIDS. And we didn't set a weather vane on top of the Golden Gate Bridge before we started talking about the American family. 
The Democrats, though, adopted a gay rights platform, including a promise for spending on AIDS prevention and research. But Bobby Campbell's health started to deteriorate soon after his speech. A lot of people have given me support for being brave. I don't feel brave so much as maybe uh, a show-off, I guess. Despite widespread homophobia and the stigma against AIDS, Bobby went public with his disease when very few would. He explained why on a local radio show. I just thought that the more I talked about it, the better it would be for me and the better it would be for other people in my community. Take care of yourselves, brothers and sisters. You're the only one you've got. AIDS activists lost their poster boy on August 15, 1984. Bobby Campbell was 32 years old. A few months later, Ronald Reagan defeated Democrat Walter Mondale in a landslide. Seems we did this four years ago, and let me just say, well, you know, good habits are hard to break. Reagan did not mention AIDS in his re-election campaign. In fact, by December 1984, he'd never publicly discussed AIDS at all. The disease continued to spread far beyond the gay community. And thousands of miles from San Francisco, the day after Christmas that same year, a mother had to give her 13-year-old son some terrible news. I just said, Ryan, you know, you've been really sick. And he said, yes. I said, they say you have AIDS. He said, am I going to die? And I said, we're all going to die someday. We just don't know when. After the break, how a Midwestern middle schooler transformed the government's response to the AIDS crisis and what that can tell us about fighting the opioid epidemic today. Welcome back. By December of 1984, more than 5,500 people in the United States had died of AIDS. It had already devastated the gay community. Now it was reaching those who thought the disease had nothing to do with them. I mean, I remember seeing people on TV wasted away, gay men. Jeannie White Gender didn't know many gay men who were out at the time. She lived in a mid-sized city in the Midwest, Kokomo, Indiana. A very industrial city. Almost everybody, it seemed, worked for GM or Chrysler. Jeannie's son, Ryan, was born there in 1971. He had severe hemophilia, and soon after he was born, the doctors told Jeannie... They had this new drug that they wanted to use on Ryan. It was called Factor Eight, which contains a clotting agent found in blood. And they said that we feel like this new drug is going to enable hemophiliacs to live almost a normal life. So I was really excited about it because there was always serious bleeding problems with hemophiliacs before then. We thought it was a miracle drug. The drug was made with blood from thousands of different donors. And at that time, donors weren't screened for disease. Ryan used Factor Eight at least twice a week for more than a decade. And then, the year he turned 13... Ryan was very sick and... I had him to the doctor a lot. One day he got off the school bus, he'd come in the house, and he said, Mom, you got to do something. He said, I can't even get off the school bus without being tired. And then just a few days later, he got pneumonia. So they did a biopsy. They took two inches out of his lung. The results came back that he had pneumocystis, which meant he had AIDS. 
Ryan got infected by all the donated blood used to make factor eight, his hemophilia medicine. I really kind of didn't want to believe it at first. You think you're going to wake up and it's not going to be the way it is. And then you figure out it is the way it is, you know, and you have to deal with it. He was only supposed to live three to six months. Jeannie's mom switched to the night shift at the GM plant so Ryan could be with his grandmother during the day when Jeannie was at work. It was hard to go back to work because you don't know how long your child has and you want that time special with him. But at the same time, um, I needed my insurance. And that was the arrangement for the first few months of 1985. And as those weeks slipped by... He started gaining weight. He didn't look sick no more. He said, call the school, okay, Mom? Ryan was eager to go back. So Jeannie called the principal. He said the school board's going to vote in July whether to allow Ryan in school next year or not. And the school board voted on the 15th of July not to let Ryan back in school. All of a sudden, overnight, it became chaos. I mean, every media in the country was calling, showing up at our doorstep, wanting to talk to this little boy that wants to go to school with AIDS. Ryan White says he gets very lonely. The 13-year-old was banned from school after it was found he was suffering from AIDS. And now his school have said they never want him back in class. I think it's better for him to stay home. I ain't got nothing against Ryan or anything. I just don't want AIDS in our school. State health officials said it would be safe for Ryan to go back to school that AIDS couldn't be spread through casual contact. But the local school board refused to admit him. The White family sued, and the legal battle continued for months. Ryan finally won the right to go back to school the following year, and he got a lot of publicity for his fight. He first captured people's hearts four years ago when his battle with AIDS and his fight to remain in school became front-page news. How do you think about the future, or do you think ahead? I think ahead, I, you know, I plan my future. I plan to go to college and so forth, but we really just live one day at a time. This brave little boy was the not-gay poster boy we needed. Back in San Francisco, Cleve Jones was still organizing and lobbying. He saw all the media coverage of Ryan White and realized... This boy could be acknowledged publicly in the way that Bobby Campbell could never be acknowledged publicly because this boy wasn't gay. I hope that doesn't come across as detracting from or diminishing in any way the bravery, the courage of Ryan and of his family. I don't want to do that, but I think, you know, we need to understand that that's the reality. We needed a poster boy. Ryan's doctors underestimated him. He made it through middle school and into high school. And as the 80s wore on, more and more people were getting diagnosed. By the summer of 1989, 100,000 people in the United States had the disease. Public hospitals in urban areas were being overwhelmed by the number of people who were coming in to be treated for AIDS. That's Tim Westmoreland again. Hospital emergency rooms were completely blocked because there were so many people. So that was bad enough, but it also meant that Anybody who was not an AIDS-related illness, somebody who was in a car crash, showed up at an emergency room and they couldn't get in. In the late 1980s, most patients with AIDS had a grim prognosis. And they had a lot of needs. Prescriptions, counseling, end-of-life planning. A lot of those needs could be met outside the emergency room. So Tim helped write a new piece of legislation to do that. It was a funding bill to help regions hit hardest by the virus, with money for prevention, testing, treatment, counseling, and outpatient care. It was a safety net program for people with HIV, 
a way for the federal government to help cities and states cope with the epidemic. There was just hearings going on in 1990 when Ryan became very sick. And, of course, Elton John was always by our side, and he was there the last week and a half of Ryan's life at the hospital and everything. And he was taking filtering phone calls from people from all around the world. And Elton come and told me that he said, this is a call I think you should take. It's Senator Kennedy. So I got on the phone. It was Senator Kennedy. He said that we are having these hearings in D.C. here, and nobody has brought so much attention to this disease. He said, for the first time, we have people caring about AIDS now. There on the phone with Jeannie, Senator Ted Kennedy described this new legislation, the bill that Tim helped write. But back in Washington, Tim heard that they faced a serious obstacle to pass it, Senator Dan Coats. And he was from Indiana. Mr. Kennedy and his staff suggested naming the legislation for Ryan White, who was from Indiana, and making him quite literally a poster child uh, for this legislation, even though it was not only for kids or only for hemophiliacs. So when Senator Kennedy was on the phone with Jeannie... He said, with your permission, we would like to name it the Ryan White Care Act. And at the time, I said that would be nice, not ever really realizing how enormous that bill would eventually become. But then I lost my son. And a few weeks after Ryan passed away, Senator Kennedy called me again. He asked me if I would come to D.C. and talk to senators. I said, no. I said, Ryan did that, not me. He said that we really need your voice. Ryan's death is so fresh on everybody's minds. We have a chance to make a difference for people with AIDS now. So Jeannie flew to Washington. She talked to senators all over Capitol Hill. And in the end, that Indiana senator, Dan Coates, voted in favor of the legislation. He became sort of the linchpin vote for passage of Ryan White. I asked Tim what he thought about naming the bill for Ryan. Tim told me he admired him, how brave he was. He said that Jeannie was a strong advocate for all patients with AIDS, not just for children or hemophiliacs. And? I sort of thought that it was, okay, if that's what the Senate needs, then that's what we'll do. My chairman, Mr. Waxman, was actually surprised and I think disappointed that I had agreed to this. It didn't change the policies or the dollars or anything. And Henry said to me, you know, I know a lot of people who've been sick and died. And we're not naming it after them. Congressman Henry Waxman said as much on the floor of the House when the CARE Act finally passed in August of 1990. This bill now has been given the Senate title of the Ryan White CARE Act. Ryan White gave this epidemic a face in the mass media of the nation, someone that we could all recognize, admire for his courage and mourn. And I would take this opportunity to do so. But I also want to take a few moments now to acknowledge that there are also thousands and thousands of other Americans, our friends, loved ones, and fellow citizens who have died and who deserve our recognition, our admiration for their courage, and our mourning. In closing the the consideration of this legislation, I would like to add just a few names of people who have died of AIDS, some friends of mine and some friends of friends. Mr. Speaker, let us acknowledge Sheldon Andelson, Mel Boozer. Some of them were friends of his, some of them were former witnesses. Some of them were actually friends of mine that I'd asked him to add in. Andre Ebert, Tito Kasner, Zach Kaufman, our colleague Stuart McKinney. 
President George H.W. Bush signed the bill into law on August 18, 1990. And federal money started to move. The following spring, more than $200 million went to cities and states for AIDS treatment, education, and prevention. And that number continued to grow year after year. By 2019, it was more than $2.2 billion. The CARE Act funding was of incredible importance for all of the social services that were necessary at a time when so many people were getting so sick and dying. These federal dollars were lifesavers, and it would be difficult to overstate the importance of that funding. Cleve Jones found out that he was HIV positive in 1985. When I talked to him last September, he told me, I certainly never imagined I would live to be 40, let alone I'm going to be 65 next month. Thanks in part to the Ryan White Care Act, AIDS prevention and treatment has changed dramatically since Cleve's diagnosis. In 1995, just that one year, nearly 50,000 people in the United States died of AIDS. In 2017, that number dropped to just under 6,000. It's a remarkable success story. And now Senator Elizabeth Warren wants to do the same thing for the opioid crisis. She's running for president with a bill modeled on Ryan White. Her CARE Act would dramatically expand access to addiction treatment and overdose prevention. It would send billions of dollars to agencies like the NIH and the CDC for addiction research and training. But will it take a poster boy to get it passed? The answer may depend on the poster boy. In the 1980s, the Reagan administration decided that it could ignore Bobby Campbell without political consequences. They were right. And the result was tragic. If you want an example of the consequences of homophobia, look at millions of dead heterosexual men and women and their children all across this planet. But elected officials realized they couldn't ignore a poster boy like Ryan White. And after all those years fighting for federal legislation on AIDS, Tim Westmoreland thinks a face like Ryan's might help pass legislation like Elizabeth Warren's. What I need to add, lest you think I've come away not learning a lesson, is that it was a stroke of genius to name the legislation after Ryan White. Poster children actually do convince people to do the right thing sometimes. Thank you so much for listening. We'd really love to hear from you. So please send comments and questions to impact at vox.com or you can tweet us at hashtag impact podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, could you take a moment and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts? It really helps other listeners find the show. The Impact's editor is Amy Drozdowska. Our producer is Bert Pinkerton. This episode was mixed and scored by Jared Paul with help from Paul Mounsey. We had music from Jukebox the Ghost and APM. A big, big thank you to Sarah Cliff for trusting me with her podcast baby and for all her work on this episode. And thank you to Professor Keith Humphreys, Cliff Morrison, Noam Hassenfeld, Herman Lopez, Irene Noguchi, and Dr. Owen Albin. 
Liz Nelson is Vox's editorial director for podcasts. And thank you to Lauren Katz, Zach Kahn, and Marika Ball-Damberg for all their help with marketing and engagement. I'm Jillian Weinberger, and the field reporting for this episode got a little emotional, including my first encounter with Tim Westmoreland's miniature dachshund puppy. Oh my oh, God! My Hello! <laughs> Hi, sweetie! <laughs> Talk to you next week. That is from season three of The Impact, which you can and should get by subscribing wherever you're getting this podcast, wherever you get your podcast. There's a lot of great stuff coming up in this season, and I think it's a, a real tonic in an election year to focus on the policy this way and to also try to imagine not just not just think about the policies people are proposing, but to try to understand how have those worked and how have they been passed in other places. It grounds a discussion that is often a little bit ungrounded. So there is great stuff coming this season on The Impact. Subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts.